Welcome to the At YouTube Podcast, episode number 88. It took us a long, long time, maybe a little too long to get to <laughs> episode 88 from 87. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll have our YouTube therapy discussion another time, maybe. But for this episode, we are talking about celebrating, reminiscing about Rattle and Hum. And I've got to my uh, left, we'll say, I've got uh, Matt McGee here with me. Matt, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Chris. How are you? I'm well, and I was going to call you guys rattle and hum here, but I guess we'll just go with <laughs> Colin. Welcome back to the show as well. Also known as hum. Yeah. Yes. Hello. Thank you. <laughs> well, actually you have to determine by the end of the show, whose recording has more hum on it that you can be rat- hum or whose has more rattling, I guess. That'll be how we determine which one of you is rattle and hum. And uh, we're recording on, uh, we're live streaming out to Twitch and Periscope and uh, Mixer, maybe even if that one's working. And uh, so feel free to throw in the comments as you're watching wherever you happen to be in the world. And we'll try and pick them up as best we can during the discussion because it's kind of just a fun chat to reminisce about Rattle and Hum since it's the 30th anniversary of that uh, album and movie as well. And uh, but before we do that, we're just going to get a couple stuff, a couple of uh, housekeeping items, I guess, out of the way, miscellaneous stuff that's happened and we've, we haven't had a chance to chat about in, in depth, but uh, one question came from at Paul McGrath 72 on Twitter, um, which you can send in if you use the hashtag. Uh, I'm, I'm being a little more generous and polite, I guess, than Matt would be. If Matt's saying, if you don't use the hashtag, ask at you too, it doesn't get it onto the show. I was, I took a, this time anyways, I was, I went through and uh, avoided some work and, and did a little more work on the show. <laughs> Anyways, he asked, will you be talking about the major, uh, all caps, changes in the set list for Experience and Innocence midway through in Europe? Uh, no, uh, oh, I hate acronyms. Lights, lighting is the away home. Love is all we have left. <laughs> right. That's the opener. <laughs> no AR on the screen either. All Innocence and Experience sections dropped in favor of Act Tongue songs. Curious to hear your thoughts. So in, I guess, two minutes or less here, we'll just do a quick, neither of us, none of us have seen the show uh, live. I mean, we've maybe have watched it on on Periscopes or Mixlers, heard it on Mixlers or whatever, but your impressions of the set list changes, Matt, you go first. Um, I think it's interesting to me just that they, it feels like they suddenly have this, had this realization that, oh, we're going to do a DVD of this tour and wow, it's going to be a lot like the DVD we did three years ago and we need to start making some changes. Um, And I, 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 I thought, I, I, I mean, so I'm, I'm not surprised by this because I remember thinking some time ago, and I don't remember if we talked about it on a podcast, but I remember thinking that they would need to make some changes to it. Um, and so I can't say I'm surprised by it. It's, you know, I think it's welcome, but you're right. It's, you know, not having seen it, not being in the room. I mean, we've had that conversation before. It's, it's hard to really have an opinion on what works and what doesn't work unless you're actually like in there. So some of our crew is going to be going to some of the uh, shows that are upcoming in the UK and Ireland and what have you. So, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to hearing what they think. Yeah. It's, it's, you kind of have to separate like what's good for the overall message of the show versus like, it would just be fun to hear song, whatever, you know, again, regardless. So how about you Colin? Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I agree with Matt. It's a little strange, but, and I'm a big fan of the show in its original form, with all the innocent stuff in there because it tells the whole story in that show. And I really like that about it. Um, that being said though, I mean, I think the songs that they put in there are fantastic. I mean, zoo station and, and stay are, you know, two of my all time favorites. Um, so, but what I'd like to see, and I hope this happens or is happening. I haven't really looked at too much of the videos of, of these songs, but 
that they incorporate those songs into the narrative somehow. And they're not just kind of there just to, mm-hmm. you know, uh, just to be great songs to hear. I know not many people would care about, you know, whether or not the songs have artistic value that contribute to the show's message, but I kind of do. I like that stuff. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that I, I guess Gavin Friday was going to go down there and kind of help shape those songs into, uh, you know, the narrative somehow. And uh, so it would be interesting to see if, if they do more stuff with the screen and more, you know, storytelling elements with those songs. Um, yeah. So it will be interesting to see how that, that all takes shape. And it's, I also noticed, yeah, I think somebody pointed out there's like six Octung baby songs being played now, and none of them are mysterious ways or until the end of the world. That's a, <laughs> quite an accomplishment right there. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And and it'll be interesting to see what they do when they head home to Dublin and and uh you know how that it just yeah. I like I like Matt's point too of of like oh yeah, we are going to as if U2 hasn't, you know, we they sort of either we tell say that they meticulously think about everything and, and nothing is unintentional in the show, but then to have that same group of people be like, "Oh crap, we have to make a video." <laughs> feels kind of funny. Uh which maybe is where some of the U2 fan club stuff comes from where it's like uh, maybe some of the same folks are in charge of delivery, <laughs> but, uh, what, uh, I'm just doing the Sherry portion of the show here. So make sure we include, uh, Sherry's comments. Uh, but, uh, what was the, what, what fan club stuff came out recently? Colin, you had, you had mentioned this. Oh, the, um, yeah, the fan club, the gift, uh, for this, for 19 or for 2018 and the <laughs> 30th anniversary of the 1988 movie, an album rattle and hum was the uh, U2 3D uh, a, a uh, replica of the U2 3D promo that was sent uh, to radio stations 30 years ago. Um, so it's just some vi- uh, vinyl with uh, what is it again? <laughs> I should have. You open it. yours. I uh, just, I leave mine yeah. sealed. I I like opening this stuff. I mean, what else oh. am I going to do with it? You know, <laughs> um, uh, when love comes to town remix. And uh, God Part 2 and uh, Desire remixes. Most of which, I mean, I think we all have them already. Um, so it's, I, I don't think it's anything too new for, for, for a lot of fans. But yeah, uh, hold it up again for know. the video, folks. To yeah. See. yeah, it's a nice looking. Cover. Yeah. And uh, look how young they look on the back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So it's, you know, I, 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 I like that they're doing vinyl for the gifts, but this one kind of feels like, I, I don't know. It's, it's hard to tell where the band is coming from with this anniversary. They seem to want to acknowledge it, but then they kind of don't want to acknowledge it. You, so you got the fan club gift, Colin, you've opened it up. Have you, do you have a record player you've actually played it on, listened to, to it on? You know, well, no, because I mean, I, yeah, I do have a record player, but the way it's hooked up right now, it's kind of frustrating. It's producing sound that is not of good quality. And I think that might have something to do with my receiver or my speakers or something. I don't know what's going on. So I haven't really listened to it yet, but (laughs) (laughs) it's good to hear the technology to answer that question. Yeah. Technology of 30 years ago is just as frustrating as technology of 2018. Exactly. (laughs) Not much has changed. (laughs) You had a few more cables back then, but otherwise it's the same idea. Mm-hmm. inside yeah. the computer or not so 30 years ago in october 1988 sorry rattle and hum was released uh initially financed by the band and intended to be screened in a small number of cinemas as an independent film and then went over budget according to wikipedia anyways i didn't know this story myself but according it went over budget and the film was bought by paramount pictures and then released in theaters in 1998 before arriving on video vhs and beta presumably 
1989. So uh, the sort of question I put to uh, both Twitter and then also to our YouTube podcast at YouTube podcast Slack chat was first one was what do you remember feeling about U2 and the new music and or movie depending on your perspective I guess where you were in the world and whether you could actually see the movie in theaters when it came out um, you know sort of putting yourself back into you in 1988 mode with uh, presumably maybe a little more hair or <laughs> whatever uh, uh, and uh, and or when you saw the Dinner. movie yeah, less, more hair, less pounds, I guess, maybe, <laughs> depending on how much hair you had. Um, and, uh, and of course, thanks to at goal is soul who replied on Twitter with wasn't effing born yet. <laughs> so making us all feel that much older. Um, but, uh, Matt, so I guess starting with you here, what's, what do you remember when it, when it first arrived or uh, even if you, before that, if you remember sort of hearing rumblings of it coming out and what sort of your well, thoughts are were? we, so, well, let, let's first do ground rules here. Are we doing album movie or both? I don't know. They were they were, yeah. they were weeks apart. We got a mix. Like a lot of people responded to, I think the music coming out, but then also some people were theater. So I guess take your pick. You. All right, I'll do. I'll do album it. first, since since. Well, I guess the first thing that I would just say, and and I think I saw this in some of the the tweets we got. This was a, it was a great time to be a U two fan, right? It was, and part of that is is like like my son and people of this the current generation would understand this is that there was no internet back then so you could go 6 months or a year or a year and a half without hearing anything about your favorite band and then all of a sudden here they were and the Joshua Tree and it was huge and they were on Time magazine and they were on NBC and CBS they were just everywhere and it was such a glorious time to be a YouTube fan because you just you couldn't avoid them now of course other people were getting sick of them um, but if you're a YouTube fan, it was like, this was fantastic. It was awesome. And then they come out with this movie. Then they're, wow, they're coming out with a movie and this double album. And it was, I, th- that's my overarching thought about this, just this era of the band is that it was like the first time they were, they were a household name and, no matter what you did, whether it was TV or radio or your newspaper or your magazines, and then the movies, you just you couldn't avoid them. And I just I loved that that whole just this whole fact that they were everywhere. Colin, does that jive with what you recall? Um, I mean, it def- the stuff about them being everywhere, yes. But for me, I mean, my experience was a little different um, in that uh, this was actually kind of the thing that got me into you two in the first place. Uh, was this movie coming out? I'd seen trailers for it, um, and I really hadn't heard at the time. I'm pretty sure I, I I hadn't really heard their music before. I wasn't really listening to music that much at the time because a lot of what I was hearing in the mid '80s was just garbage to me, uh, and nobody had turned me on to you two yet. Like I didn't know those kinds of people who knew about cool music yet. Uh, it wasn't until high school in 1987 when I started meeting people and somebody said, yeah, you should buy the Joshua tree album. You'd really like it. And I saw the video for still haven't found on MTV. And I was like, yeah, all right, I'm going to go buy that. And then the album was coming out. I bought the rattle and hum album and, you know, just listen to those two albums. And I thought, okay, now I'm ready for the movie. And that's all I knew, like going into the movie, I knew those two albums and that's it. I didn't backtrack to any of the other stuff. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I mean, I was kind of late to the party, but also just in time and in certain respects. Right. This was still when it was a big deal to go to the record store and like 
a new album, like the release dates, it was a big freaking deal. And and so I was in 88, I was a student at Pepperdine University and I was involved in the campus radio station. And one of the other guys that was involved in the radio station was another big U2 fan. His name was Tim Porter. And I remember there was there was a morning, whatever it was, it would have been before the album came out on October 10th. So this probably would have been about two weeks or so before then. And he called me up on a landline dorm room or from the radio station to my dorm room. And it was like eight or nine in the morning. And he said, the new U2 album just got here. Why don't you come listen to it? And so I just, there was no way I was going to any class that day. And so <laughs> I went, I went to the, where he was in the, in the little communications trailer in the radio station area. And we locked ourselves in this one of the studios and just li- literally listened to it in, like nonstop for like f- probably five or six hours. And just, I just remember like smelling the vinyl and it was just like the greatest thing in the world. And it was so like, it was like thick. The cardboard was thicker than most albums, and I love like I love the print on it and the font and the design. It was just the most beautiful, wonderful day of this listening to this new album and songs. And oh gosh, yeah, see there it is, and it's I'll, I will never forget that day. Just cutting all my classes to sit in a radio studio at college and listen to Rattle and Hum with my friend Tim, and we were just like two kids in the candy store. It was fantastic. Do you think that's that's partly why I feel like some of the there's no way for a new album from whatever band, your favorite band of whatever is to replicate some of those experiences these days and you know old person digital versus you know analog of the past or whatever but just like you had the the smells, the sights and yeah. and everything that was all wrapped up and it wasn't just hearing the music for the first time that was the part of the experience obviously and so yeah that that's hard to like replicate that in this day and age but uh such as time, it keeps marching on, I guess. So um, that's where, yeah, um, I was just trying to find, a, so we got lots of comments and replies from folks, <laughs> uh, which is awesome. And uh, at YouTube Fangirl said, Rattle and Hum is what turned her on to U2. She was in a college freshman, a college freshman in a small college in Nebraska, and the movie was playing at the town theater. The next day after seeing the movie, I went out and bought all of their CDs and haven't looked back since. So, um, and Ian, at Ian P. Ryan, Ian from at U2 here said he was too young to know what it was. <laughs> And, uh, <laughs> which that's, that was my experience too. I, I wasn't actually, I, like I've said before, I was an acting baby YouTube fan. And so I wasn't even, a, I was 89, I was uh, grade eight. So I wasn't even really aware of, I was listening to vanilla ice probably is what I was listening to when everybody else was getting turned on to YouTube, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, but, uh, I'll just throw in, uh, Kenny from, uh, our staff here sent in some audio from across the pond and, uh, Get his comments on that. My first memories of Rattling Hum, uh, walking down Union Street in Glasgow, seeing um, the front cover, massive in HMV music store shop window, wandering in, catching the DVD playing With or Without You, which to my mind is still probably uh, one of the best versions of that song that I've ever come across. Um, I remember going to the theatre, um, I saw it twice. Second time, it was only myself and a friend from university. Um, what did I think of the music? Well, the music for me was wild. Um, there was a bit of retrospect. There was all sorts of stuff like Bob Dylan. 
um, coming into play. And then there was this track, God Part 2, which kind of kind of came out at the time, which said this is a bridge between old U2 and new U2, and indeed it was. Um, magic track that was only really played live on Love Town, and I'd love to hear and see it again. Um, awesome album. Um, where does it sit in my mind? For... I think it's a very unique album. It's a, an album that kind of captures a moment in time and actually inadvertently captures a moment of transition um, for the band. Um, I love it. But then again, I kind of love all things U2. Yeah, he does work at a U2 fan site, so <laughs> you might be biased <laughs> if... yeah. So what Kenny said there about seeing the huge um, signage in HMB or whatever story said, it was the same thing for me. And that's one of the things, cause I, you know, I worked in a record store for a little bit during the Joshua tree, uh, Joshua tree era. And then when the movie came out, I remember just it, everything. It was like, everything was supersized. Everything was larger than life. There were these enormous posters of the band, um, you know, outside the theater, inside the theater. And it was just like, it was, it was like, it was, we think of Zoo TV as like this assault on the senses, and it was, but Rattle and Hum in a different way was also an assault on the senses because it was just, everything was just blown up uh, and supersized. It was just, it was, it was remarkable, a remarkable time. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I remember that whole sort of onslaught of, of promotion. I actually still have in this tube here, uh, those four posters that we see on the screen right now, one for each band member. And they, like, they don't do that for just any movie. Like they do that for like, at the time, you know, like Star Wars or Indiana Jones or some, you know, Star Trek movie or something big like that. But those like rattle and, you know, you two rattle and hum. I mean, you could tell like that this big studio got a hold of this film and we're going to just, you know, milk it uh, for all they could. Cause it's a, a pretty easy profit for them. I'm sure that that's what I'm sure they were thinking. Um, and so, you know, and, and why not, you know, strike while the, the, you know, while, while the lightning's, you know, hot or whatever the metaphor goes, but <laughs> I think I mixed my metaphors yeah. somehow, but, uh, but you know, iron on, on the iron's hot. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I went opening nights um, at the town and country theater in Arlington Heights, Illinois. And um, I mean, I, I, I don't know how you guys are when you go to movies, but I like to sit closer to the front than towards the back. And I, I was like that back then too. And uh, so I sat pretty close to the front and not, not aware that the theater had installed brand new speakers under the screen and oh, they gosh. like cranked them up. Like it I know was where this is loud. going. <laughs> so I'm like, Oh wow. This is like being at a real concert and it's really loud. Uh, and then later in the film, when you get to bad and it's like super, like the lighting is really low, it's really dark and everything. And you're, and it's really cool and shadowy and you don't, you know, it, it, you know, that and your eyes are getting used to that. And then all of a sudden streets where the streets have no name comes in and it just like, all of a sudden you're like blinded by these lights and these spotlights that are shining right into the camera. So I was like going deaf and blind during where the streets have no name. First time I saw it in Red and Hum, I was, I was like, this is my favorite song and I can't wait for it to be over right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, I'll just throw in some more comments from at Kevin STU said, I remember the opening chords of desire on the radio and thinking, Holy uh, S this is, this is kick ass at poets. 
uh, Highland 8. I went on a student demo from Exeter to London, then slid off to watch The Empire. And uh, cinema was nearly empty, but the screen and sound were amazing. I'm sure, like, depending on where you were in the world and how, you know, recently or how quickly you got to see the movie, there's either, like, packed full of YouTube fans or, like, you were the only person in the theater, you know, depending on the demographic of where you were in the world. Because it was probably, like, definitely that kind of polarizing in terms of, um, yeah, reception and, and demand for it. and because it wasn't like, uh, again, I'll, I'll lean on your guys' um, experience, I guess, of being a little bit older, but uh, it wasn't like common for bands to release movies, even like, especially the- theatrical releases, right? Like that that did happen, but it wasn't, you know, it's not like every couple of years there was a new. Yeah. And well, and Colin's the expert on this, so I'm going to defer to him, <laughs> but but that's the, like for me, just at the time, I wasn't aware that there were as many music films uh, before Rattle and Hum, and that sort of added to the to the how special it was for me. And then, of course, then you start reading reviews and articles about Rattle and Hum, and they start referring to you know the Last Waltz and all these other. And so I'm like, oh wow, I didn't know all this. But so, Colin, you go ahead and take over that. Well, they were more common in the 60s and 70s, I think, at the time. I mean, you had uh, Bob Dylan's Don't Look Back, you had Rolling Stones Gimme Shelter, you had Woodstock, Monterey Pop, um, and uh, you know, and, and, and many more, I mean, Rolling Stones made, uh, you know, a, quite a few concert films that were released theatrically. Um, but they're, you know, they, they, I think stop making sense was, you know, obviously the most highly regarded one in the 1980s. Um, I mean, that played for actually years in some theaters, definitely one here in Chicago that played it for over a year. Um, just because it was such a, like a, you, you can go to that movie and like, watch it and dance to it in the aisles, which a lot of people were doing. It was a very popular midnight uh, show. So, um, so they were, yeah, it wasn't very common. It's certainly nothing on this scale as far as promotion. Like there was nothing until, you know, until rattled hum that would, you know, that had just these kind of red carpet Chinese theater premieres that this one had, you, you know, it just wasn't heard of. They were released by indie studios who, you know, were just hoping that the fans would show up and they could make maybe one million in profit and they'd be happy with that for, you know, but for a big studio getting involved like this was pretty unheard of. And, and I mean, Rattle and Hum, the, the movie had, it, I mean, it premiered in Dublin first and then there were three or four others, right? After that, there was, I think there was London and I think New York and then Los Angeles. And that's, I mean, that's the kind of thing, isn't it, Colin, now that, they do for the big, you know, the big Marvel movies or the big Star Wars mm-hmm. movies and that sort of stuff, right? Yeah, China. I mean, that's that's a big uh, market as well. So yeah, it's it's it it gets multiple release. A lot of these big movies, these big tentpole movies that come out get multiple release dates throughout the the world. They don't necessarily premiere in the U.S. either. A lot of them, a lot of big movies premiere in London before they come here. Um, so yeah, that was it, that this they seem to kind of give that same kind of release strategy to this movie as well, although on a smaller scale than what they do today. Did, did you say? Did you say the, you the theater you went to in Arlington Heights? Did I get that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. How was it full? Uh yeah. I mean, it, they put it a really big theater, so it was not packed. It was maybe almost half full, and for this theater, that's pretty good. Okay. Uh, cause it was, it was, it was kind of big, but I went back a week later, took a friend of mine 
And we like to sneak into, you know, buy one ticket and sneak into a couple films, you know, on that one ticket. You know, we were just, that's how we were. And uh, we we did it really weird this time We because we wanted to see Child's Play. And uh, that that came out that week and just stomped <laughs> the competition that at the box office, Rattle and Hum never had a chance against Child's Play. Um, so we like... We like watched the first hour of Rattle and Hum, and then we had to leave to catch Child's Play, and then we came back and caught like the last forty-five minutes of Rattle and Hum, uh, and you know, for their <laughs> oh second screening that afternoon. And there was just me and him and like two other people at that show. So <laughs> that's awesome. The writing was on the wall for Rattle and Hum. It's really rude. Yeah, <laughs> at Buzz Daddy, at Buzz One Daddy said I was he was in London on a study trip abroad and saw the movie on Halloween at the Empire Theater. The audience was reacting to the film's concert footage as if we were really seeing the band live. Amazing time in the band's story and still one of my favorite albums. And that's I the last time we were just talking before the show when the last time was we saw the movie. If we're just talking movie side side of things, and uh, the last time I saw it, I think was with Matt and a bunch of other folks uh, at the U two forty celebrations in Cleveland a couple years ago, and. And certainly just like opening the album, you know, if with friends or whatever, back in the day, the, the idea of seeing a movie with other U2 fans like this obviously is nothing. You can't compare it to just like sitting in front of your computer or your home theater or whatever you have set up to watch a movie. Um, definitely rattle and hum. The movie was more fun to watch than innocence and experience the, the concert movie that I sat in front of my computer watching just purely because of all the other fans in the room and cheering and, and quoting lines and, you know, almost, uh, the, what was it? The Rocky Horror Picture Show version of you two or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) They weren't quite throwing stuff at the screen, but that idea anyways, of which it would be awesome to, if somehow you could, you know, get together with fans or fellow fans in, in the nearby neighborhoods or whatever areas and, uh, and, and rent a theater out to watch something like this rather than like, yeah, just, sitting throwing it on solo in your basement or whatever but um yeah it's it's worth doing if if you that opportunity presents itself anyways even if you feel like you've seen it a bunch uh, i saw i saw opening night um in like i said i was at pepperdine which is a little north of los angeles and so it was the night that they were doing the band was doing the premiere in hollywood and so there was a group of like eight or ten of us from pepperdine that decided that we were going to go see it on opening night but we didn't go to whatever was the man Chinese theater or whatever one where the band was. We stayed sort of like uh, out a little away from the city in uh, Westwood, which is where UCLA is based. And there's a whole bunch of theaters there. And there's obviously a lot of students and it's a real, you know, it was a great place to go on, on weekends or nights and whatever. And so we went and it was when one of the big theaters there and it, I mean, the lines were just down the street and around the corner and, it was just a just a total mob scene, and I remember, you know, we got in, and there weren't even enough seats for all of us to sit together, so I ended up with, she wasn't my wife at the time, my girlfriend at the time, now my wife. We sat together, and then a couple friends were up over here, and then a couple friends were, you know, further on the side, so we were just all sort of scattered, and it was just, oh my gosh, you're, I mean, what you just said, Chris, is it's... Yeah, it was even then when you didn't know what was going on and there was nobody obviously quoting lines or anything on opening night, but it was just incredible to 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 be in this this full theater of YouTube fans with the music and um I remember like the you know when it this the screen goes red in streets that was just like, you know, oh my gosh, this is the greatest thing I can die now. <laughs> <laughs> and um and the, you know the sound was incredible and I remember 
the I remember being blown away when the choir first kicks in during Still Haven't Found. Because like the movie up to then, obviously there's music and talking and all this sort of stuff. But then all of a sudden when the choir kicked in, it just felt like like it was surround and everywhere and just super loud and I, I just I can't even that was such an experience to and so that we that we so we saw it opening night and then we went to the same theater the following week and it was like maybe half full and then it was like out of the theater after that. <laughs> <It was> like, <laughs> like even in Los Angeles I think it only lasted like three weeks maybe yeah <laughs> Uh, I'm just trying to get, uh, there's some questions that uh, swept by on the screen there, but I know some folks were talking about how they had reviewed it, uh, at various time. I was just doing a quick search or check up on, uh, Rotten Tomatoes just to see how it <laughs> counts on there. And it's a, got a 62% uh, Rotten Tomato reading reader rating by, re- right. yeah. And then audience score of 86%. So obviously fans yeah. will go and, you know, review it. There's interesting in the critic review section, there's one from, uh, Colin Suter, from efilmcritic.com. Oh, is it on there? I wasn't sure if that was actually linked on there. <laughs> from back in 2004, <laughs> and your quote that they pulled out was, uh, uh, oh, it's a rotten one, I guess, right? When it's like a splatter, that's the rotten one? I was opposed oh, to the tomato. Yeah, I, you know, I certainly don't think the movie is rotten. I, I don't really <laughs> care for their units of measurement there. I don't at all think it's a rotten film, but it just I gave it like a two and a half stars out of four. because out of, on a, speaking at, Looking at it from a film critic's perspective, yeah. Um, which we can get into later. But, sort of have to set your uh, bias aside a little bit, I guess. But yeah, I do. Yeah, I do sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Rattle and hum. This is your quote that they pulled. Rattle and hum exists as it does simply because you two had planned too much ahead of time. The antithesis of spontaneity and the killjoy of documentary filmmaking, which sounds like how you two would. And that's yeah. That was, I mean, I don't think they would disagree with that actually. And I, I mean, certainly uh, someone I spoke to involved with the making of the film said as much. I mean, uh, this was a movie that they, you know, wanted to make, but they didn't really want to be in, which it seems like, you know, it's like they, you know, they had the camera crew, but they didn't really uh, open up to them or offer much to them or give them much to like really work with in the editing room to make a really interesting film about these four guys. It's great if you're a fan, but if you're coming at, at this from, you know, just, you want to learn more about you too and how they operate and what they do. Rattle and hum is not the film to watch, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think uh, from the sky down is a much more successful documentary in terms of showing the band and, uh, you know, getting a personal um, getting their personal points of view of their music, their lives, their friendship, um, how they create, how they, you know, disagree and everything like that. And rattle and hum has none of that. So it, does come off from an outsider's perspective, Rattle and Hum does come off as a vanity project. Um, Even though it's got great music and great visuals and all that awesome stuff. uh, But as a documentary, it is a, you know, a a bit of a failure, which makes that's where it is interesting how, you know, whether the band we've alluded to at the beginning of whether, how much the band wants to sort of celebrate the 30th anniversary and how much they don't. And there's probably a bit of that tension of like the movie in their their view, um, as much as fans kind of love it, wasn't what they had hoped it was going to be or didn't know what it was going to be, I guess, maybe. And that's maybe where some of that tension, maybe Larry or whoever is like, let's never mention that again or or whatever. So um, M. Healy, 1972, in, in Periscope chat said, I remember watching it open tonight in New Jersey. The few fans started dancing through the aisles. 
And uh, Caroline, watching on Periscope as well, said, all I remember of the movie is how about the snowmobile and how we laughed about it for years, as well as Larry's quote about Elvis being buried in the back garden. <laughs> yeah, which there again, maybe that's why Larry <laughs> doesn't enjoy it as much. I don't know. Sort of a, a musical journey, really. So... Uh, there we go yeah Roland on Twitter too (laughs) at Rohud67 said Rattle and Hum arrived shortly after I moved into my first apartment and I kind of drove my roommates a little nuts by playing it a lot I remember being pretty excited to hear new music from them and for the opportunity to see hear them on the big screen he'd seen Joshua Tree live but from pretty far back in Montreal Stadium so this was a real treat he did think some of it the movie was kind of pretentious though but I still loved it hearing the songs still takes me back to a great time in my life 1988 was a good year and a transitional time for him as well so interesting there and uh ian had mentioned uh no not ian sorry um kenny had mentioned with or without you and uh just queue it up here our own uh kelly eddington as well had a response to the movie let's just play it here i was a sophomore in college in 1988 my best friend melinda was my roommate and for the first time in my life i felt truly known by another human being She was and is a David Letterman or Steve Martin caliber comedic genius, and we became friends over our mutual love of an obscure Lou Reed album. We were creative partners for years, and we were more than friends. We were bandmates, except we didn't have a band. We were John and Paul, we were Axel and Slash, we were Wendy and Lisa, we were Bono and The Edge, and we fell in love. Our secret romantic relationship was still in its infancy when we watched Rattle and Hum in a theater on the weekend it was released. Both of us enjoyed U2, but I liked them a little more than Melinda did. Since U2 never toured anywhere near our university, we were curious to see them live on the big screen at least. Watching them interact with each other was fascinating to me, someone who had longed for that kind of bond all her life and had finally found one. They weren't much older than we were, and has the band ever been more lovingly photographed? Maybe Prince in Purple Rain, but he was well-lit and colorful. You two were animated Baroque paintings and Dorothea Lange photos. Adam was low-key charming, and Larry was very cute. Edge's look at the time did him no favors, but he was clearly brilliant and granted a pass. But Bono was the androgynous, girly man of my dreams, and as the movie continued and I held Melinda's hand under a coat, I knew I was in trouble. 25 seconds into With or Without You, the things Bono's hands were doing to that microphone and the way the light hit the underside of his eyebrows made me realize that, yeah, uh uh-oh, I also liked men. A lot. P.S. I would like to thank my friend Shannon for ruining Bono's suspenders for me with the following two words, and sensitive listeners may wish to fast forward a couple of seconds because they are devastating. See, the thing people don't think about regarding suspenders is this. Nipple chafing. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks, Kelly. Show title. Show title. Yeah. Mark it down. <laughs> there you go. Oh I remember uh, when I first played it back, I was like, what is she, when she prefaces it with like, you know, viewers may want, or listeners may want to fast forward, what is she about to say? And then that was not what I was expecting her to say. But anyways, thanks Kelly for sending that in. And uh, yeah, <laughs> it's uh, definitely a musical journey. And I think the, what's interesting to me is her take, you know, con- 
not counter to what you're saying, Colin. I know as a fan, you can appreciate what, what Kelly is saying, but just that sure. the visual of it for a fan, obviously, or a new fan of you two or whatever is very striking and very intense and, and probably right on the money for what you're hoping to see if you're a U2 fan going into that. In terms of like production concerts, you know, the rock star on the stage and pouring his heart out and angry at the atrocities in, in Northern Ireland and, you know, all the, like the emotion of the, of the show and even just the, yeah, the various uh, visuals that she's uh, obviously was struck by way back when. So, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly am not disputing any of that. I mean, the, the, it's a great concert film just, you know, for song for song, like it's, you know, terrific. Um, it's just, they haven't, they hadn't yet learned to articulate in front of the camera like they can now. Yeah. They just weren't ready to be like the subjects of a documentary. They were a rock band that were definitely, you know, ready to have put on a great concert film. They got all the right people to make it look beautiful. Like Robert Brinkman's black and white cinematography is stunning. And seeing that on the big screen was like the first wow factor for me when I saw it, you know, and they opened the movie with Helter Skelter. I was like, whoa, I've never seen like black and white cinematography on a big screen like this. That was another rare thing in the eighties was black and white movies. So like it, that, that was like, you know, that combined with the song itself, of course, and the performance was just like, I mean, I was so on board with it. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm certainly not disputing the, the technical prowess that's on display in this film at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kelly, Kevin Hugh, I think I got extra few numbers there. Kevin Hugh on Twitter said, I remember feeling fantastic when I first heard Angel of Harlan, the horn section just blew me away. And when I saw the movie, I wanted to see more of my favorite parts, which was the backstage stuff especially graceland which yeah um and it's i mean it's it's worth mentioning too that there's i i don't know where you'd find this now in in our you know 2018 internet but back in the 1990s early 2000s internet the uh rattle and hum outtakes were going around quite a bit are they on youtube Mm -hmm. maybe oh yeah they are are they, they? Are. okay so yeah. <laughs> and, and and that kind of gets to what Kevin was just talking about the the Graceland stuff I mean that's and what Colin mentioned earlier about how rigid they were and and lack of spontaneity the I mean the outtakes have some you know really hysteric like the stuff with the squirrels at Graceland is is hysterical <laughs> and so there's a I, I think it's important you know if you're into rattle and hum look for those outtakes because um, I think it sort of gives you a snapshot sort of a more complete snapshot of what, uh, you know, what yeah. could have been maybe. Yeah. And, but there's also a lot of tedium in there too. I mean, well, that's typical of any documentary that you're making. There's well, sure. always going to be just yeah. moments where the camera's rolling and nothing's happening, but there's a lot of that <laughs> in the outtakes. Like, uh, you know, there's just a whole scene of them just riding the backseat of a car and they're just like not saying anything, but the camera's rolling and they're just kind of like, I don't know, what do we do with this camera here? I don't know. What do you, do you have anything to say? I don't, I don't know. Not really. I mean, it's well, like, see, and, huh. that's, I mean, <laughs> can that, you imagine that, that now? Like Bono not yeah. having anything to say? <laughs> exactly. That's one of the point I was just going to make is that, is that it, that's why I think there's, I, I think there's such value in Rattle and Hum is because at that time, they were still figuring all this out in their career. Yeah. They didn't know how to be, you know, the world's biggest rock band. It was all new to them, playing stadiums and having people follow them around everywhere they went. And the whole, you know, the spotlights and the cameras and the news and the whole nine yards. It was all new. And so that's, you know, mm-hmm. when I watch the movie, that I, I want to just keep that in mind. Because, you know, yeah, they were very much still figuring 
U2 yeah. out, U2 as, as, you know, enormous rock band. Um, and I think the movie catches that. I think that sort of explains what you were talking mm-hmm. about earlier, Colin, with, you know, with them not wanting to be, you know, doing a movie, not, but not really wanting to be in the movie. <laughs> yeah. And not, not, not wanting to talk about that stuff on camera. Yeah. They just like wanted, they're very protective about their mystique and what, how they were presented themselves. And that's how they, but you know, they got involved in the editing of the film and they got to choose what got in put into the film and what didn't get put into the film. I mean, Radiohead made a film called meeting people is easy at the height of what, well, you know, when okay computer came out and be, you know, it was like their, their, that was their Joshua tree. And there's a lot of scenes in that movie of Tom York going, I don't know what to do. I don't, I don't know what's happening. This is not supposed to happen. We make, we thought this album was going to be a failure and here we are getting awards and gold records and other, we don't know what to do now. We're, we're, you know, that like, that's really compelling to watch you know, yeah. a band really like let their guard down uh, and, and, and let the audience in on that experience that they're having. Yeah, it's funny that to think of them that at that age, which you know, late eighties or whatever, and not there was obviously wasn't the proliferation of cameras and stuff obviously that we have now. Like my kids growing up are going to know how to respond when someone sticks a camera in their face because from age zero, there's been cameras in their face, and just as a as society, even obviously, it's it's so different a time frame to even think that, um, and even just thinking, I was thinking like as if they wouldn't have been able to process, you know. Bono or Edge or whatever, when they're sitting there in the van, that whatever's being recorded isn't, you know, it's not like it's going out live the next day, the way we think of it in the world or like live right now, as this happens to be, um, you know, they still had the, the editorial control, like they exerted obviously, but to control what actually got sent out. So, but they are still so guarded to not even really show to let their guard down a bit on camera, you know, before it went to the editing room even, um, and just sort of terrified, like you said, almost like that in modern day times, I guess like closest thing I think of is like sort of the Apple world of like secrecy and, you know, don't let anything out before it happens or whatever. And that's kind of like YouTube back then, back in the day, it felt like there was just like mythology that they'd built up around the band and everybody built up and they were so scared to pop that no pun intended, uh, that they, yeah, were just released this sort of rigid version of themselves. And, and obviously like you would say, I think I read your review somewhere or maybe, I can't remember where, where I saw this, but that, you know, without the, you know, sort of creative failure as it were, or struggle or whatever of rattle and hum, then we might not have gotten act tongue baby the way we did. And it wouldn't have been nearly mm-hmm. the response to it. And so there's a lot to be thankful for. Oh yeah. Paul McGinnis said the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Um, just going a couple more comments at Steve Doza on Twitter said, you two were always there when I was a kid in some way, but I really got into them when I found a cassette of rattle and hum at a bus stop. Wonder who I'd be if I hadn't picked it up. It was meant to be. <laughs> it's very true. Um, I think, if uh, if there isn't, you guys don't have any other comments. The second question that was uh, I don't know how long we went, almost the whole hour here on the first question, but just and we've kind of alluded to this, I guess, a bit. But transitioning to the second question, I'd put to you guys and, and the crew is how does Rattle and Hum hold up now in 2018 in terms of U2's history? And um, just to get us started off, I'll, I'll read off a couple comments here. But at Kevin STU said the studio tracks hold up really well, but the live tracks do not. Discuss, he says. Well, I'll. We'll determine who what we're going to discuss, Kevin. STU, thank you very much. <laughs> but uh, and then at Roland, Roland uh, at Rohad sixty seven said holds up rather well when you consider the response that Angel Harlem and All I Want Is You still get played live, which obviously they just you know did at the in New York a little while ago here, brought out the horn section and to massive massive applause. 
Ian P. Ryan said, it's their second least impressive album, in his opinion, but there's a massive gap between it and their least impressive album of October. That's uh, You can send your tweets to Ian P. Ryan on Twitter if you, <laughs> for your October fans. And uh, at Buzz1Daddy said, the music is still great from that period to me. I feel that the band back then could do no wrong, in my opinion, and they took a risk doing this project. I love them when they stick their necks out. Some of the best stuff comes out of that. The B-sides from this period rivaled the Joshua Tree B-sides, in my opinion, even got a lot of radio time, which um, that's what I remember too, is uh, being at a friend's house and there's like, and going to the record store too, and CD store and seeing like all these, like, why are there so many CDs that are related? Like, you know, just sort of grab, wrapping my head around what a, a single was, what a B-side was at that time, sort of learning that ter- terminology through U2 and seeing, yeah, like the Desire single, I think with, that's the one with Larry on the cover. Yeah. And collecting those after the fact, like going back and sort of collecting a lot of those. There you go. Still unopened. And uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> but what do you, what do you think, Matt? What, how does it hold up now looking back, I guess, in terms of their history? I, don't, I, I, I guess I don't, I hadn't given that a ton of thought until you posed the question, but I think I'd probably fall closely, semi-closely in line with what Kevin STU said. I think the studio tracks for the most part are really beautiful. Like all I want is you is one of the best songs they've ever done. Heartland is a beautiful song. Um, God part two is, is really solid. So, so, so yeah. And then I think, but see, I, I like the live, I like the live tracks as well. I just think as long as you keep in mind that it's them and that period, like some of it, comes across a little cringeworthy, you know, if you're trying to, I don't know, sort of say, is this still cool or whatever it is, but they were never cool anyway. So whatever. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I don't know. It's, I, I think for the most part, it holds up fine. I think the studio tracks are probably stronger. So, so yeah, I'd I'd probably go more, most closely with Kevin. How about you, Colin? Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think it's best looked at not as an album, but as a scrapbook. I mean, because it's yeah, sequential. Good. I mean, as, as, see, the sequencing is just—it's a mess. Like listening yes, to this album, beginning yes. and it's just all over the place. And I—that's what I don't like about it. But track for track, it's—it's it's really strong. Um, but you know, I—I I, I, you know, I prefer the more sort of albums that you know were just painstakingly sequenced. You know, yeah, you can't have—you you can't listen to an album without this one if you're if it's missing this one song. But rattle and hum, you can kind of make your own rattle and hum playlist and you're not really messing with the art form in the creation of the album itself. You know, you can just take all the studio tracks and you're still and, and isolate all the other stuff and you still have rattle and hum. Mm-hmm. So. It's, it's like they hit the shuffle button and just released it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> Except they're like, we need, we have two love tracks. Let's put the two love tracks together and <laughs> star spangled down every four ball. The blue sky makes sense. And then we need some relaxing music at the end. So all I want to do, and <laughs> I guess there's three love tracks if you got count pride, but um, yeah, that's where like the, even the, um, who was it? You, uh, Kenny, I think an Ian may or Kenny and Matt anyways, referenced God part two and, and sort of like the, was it as like looking back on it now to me, to my ears, it doesn't feel like it's this like uh signal of what's going to come with Actung. To me, it still sounds like a very eighties, just like sequencer beat kind of thing. And I guess for you two to be using something like that, some sort of electronica sequencer thing at the time may have been sort of like, holy crap, what's you two doing or whatever. But, um, but was it, do you think it was as, as kind of like a futuristic sounding song when you heard it on the album? No, I mean, I, I think 
if I'm forced to choose a song off the album that sounds like 90s U2, I guess that would be the that's, one. I think that, um, I, and I actually think that's what happened. I, th- I think that right. the, the, I think the revisionist history almost. Right, yeah. exactly. I, I think the, the fact that, that we, a lot of people, a lot of fans tend to picture God Part Two as sort of the pave way, paving the way for the 90s song is because back in the day on Wire, that was like a regular conversation we, we would have. And you're like, well, what song from this album do you think paved the way for the next album? And, and everybody just, you know, well, God Part Two probably is the one for. I don't think that at the time, I certainly didn't think that God Part Two sounded, you know, futuristic in any way. That's for sure. But if you, you know, go back and try to figure out, that would probably be one of the ones you would think. So I guess there's something about the reverb and the sound of that guitar that you know, just kind of sounds a little rougher on the edges, whereas everything else on the album yeah. is very sort of traditional. Um, and I, you know, I think if anything from this era that points to the new direction, it's the song, the, the song they did for the red hot and blue uh, charity single, the cover of night and day, which mm-hmm. was a very radical departure in terms of production for them. Um, but that's still in that time period. That's about, that's, that's about the closest thing I can think of that, yeah, from this era that points to a rattle and hum type thing. I mean, uh, Octon Baby type thing. Yeah, yeah. In terms of like, obviously, the songs from the album, like Desire, um, that and All I Want Is You, Angela Harlem, uh, Heartland, that you know resonate still very well today. Obviously, and and I mean, obviously, at a U two concert, um, you can pick out almost any of these, and and if you play them they would get recognized. It's, it's hard not to in a band with a band that's or an album from a band that's 30 years old, obviously. Um, and so I think that speaks well of the album as a whole that it, you know, entered or has become part of the, their musical library so strongly and, uh, where they could pick almost any track and, and pull it out. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I like calling that, that idea of it being sort of like the scrapbook as opposed to any sort of album. And it's, it's, it's funny to imagine or interesting to imagine, uh, U2 today going back to the, you know, the tracks, let's say, or whatever the recordings they have, um, in the vault or whatever to reissue maybe, um, you'd, you'd mentioned this or somebody had put this in the, in the notes here, you know, with all the vinyl re-releases, why no rattle and hum? Do they have to re- renegotiate certain music rights again? Um, so there might be things like that with, uh, whatever freedom for my people and maybe star spangled banner, I guess. I don't know. Um, but Skelter. Yeah. And Helter Skelter. And it's hard not to imagine that they wouldn't get rights again, but who knows that's all complicated and lawyery, but. Well, isn't that a problem when they uh, uploaded all their songs onto iTunes, uh, when you could buy the whole U2 catalog, but you couldn't get the cover songs. Wasn't that kind of sort of a situation back in 2004 when they did that? Yeah. With Apple and yeah. Yeah. The whole thing on there. Yeah. So who knows? But what I was getting at is like sitting edge down in front of a mixing console now and saying, okay, you can, you know, reissue, we're going to reissue this in some form. And what do you want to polish up? What do you want to like hide away? Obviously you can't, you know, what they, they it's not like they've done like a complete revisionist history on or re- revised you know, something like pop where they put new tracks in and, and uh, taken out tracks they didn't, they're not proud of anymore. They, they kind of are sticking to the canon, I guess, <laughs> in terms of what they re-release and how they re-release it. They might have a, a, a new remix or a, a new EQ for, for, for albums and stuff when they reissue them. But um, yeah, it'd be interesting to hear, give edge free reign on this one and say, okay, now with 2018 edge version, go spend six months <laughs> with rattle and hum and see what he comes out of, out of that with and how different it might be, I guess, if, given that opportunity. 
He would tweak everything. Yeah, I mean, we know. <laughs> it would have there's a different a title. Would, there's not a thing that would be the same. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it just wouldn't be right on how. And what would G- Jimmy Iovine think of that? Right. <laughs> you know, sure, he'd love it. <laughs> All right. Well, any last uh, final comments, closing comments on Rattle and Hum before we close the book on the third? Do you think they're going to do something of more importance with it? Or is it, are they just kind of like in the vein of Joshua Tree 30 or is that kind of like they might play one concert with a little bit more focus here or is it just kind of going to pass us by? I haven't heard anything. So if, yeah. if I mean, if anything's coming, I, I'm certainly out of the loop. I, I'd kind of be shocked at this point because I mean, my gosh, it's, it's already October. So obviously... I think if they were doing anything, we would have had a, some kind of uh, announcement by now. But I think they did as much as they want to do when they did that uh, Apollo show, right? You know, uh, right? That, that's Good what it point. was. Yeah, uh, and the fan club release. Yeah, and the fan club release. I think that was their way of just saying, "Okay, we the, we we you guys like rattle and hum probably more than we do, so here's some stuff and." we're going to move on. Plus they're on tour, you know, they don't have time to sit in a studio and do all that stuff <laughs> and, and, and mess with, 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 with retweaking the album and re-releasing it and all that. So, yeah, I've heard rumor that they're going to release this episode of the podcast. That was a double record. <laughs> <laughs> so look, look forward to that. In- do, before we wrap up, um, I think we, we should mention, I think we can mention Colin, do you want to just sort of like, like, sneak peek of the the interview that we're going to be posting here in the next week or so week or 10 days yeah i was uh, lucky enough to talk to robert brinkman uh the cinematographer uh of the black and white portion of rattle and hum um uh because jordan cronenworth who did the color he's not around anymore so uh but uh so that will be coming up soon and he gave a lot of great you know details on being in the production and you know being a cameraman on call 24 yeah. seven uh, and and what that was like in 1988 uh, so um, yeah so that'll be posted what next week two weeks something like that I don't yeah know. sometime I, I think right around the anniversary of the movie which was what I, uh, the 27th I think was the first uh, well it depends on what country in I think uh, I think the first one was the t- US, I mean, it, November 4th so November 4th in the US right. <laughs> That's yeah. right. My sister's birthday. But yeah, I think it'll be sometime around the 27th, which was the the Dublin premiere. Um, but yeah, it's re- he, Colin, you did a great job on it. It's really fascinating. Oh, and he gave, he, he gave really good, you know, good answers and a lot of background stories and that sort of stuff. It's a, it's a great read. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, we'll look forward to posting that. So um, if you want to hear about when that gets posted, I guess you could follow at U2 on Twitter, twitter.com slash ATU2 or facebook.com slash ATU2com. Instagram.com slash ATU2com. And uh, Colin, what's, uh, if they want to tweet at you because of your Rotten Tomatoes review or something? <laughs> <laughs> what, I, uh, I rarely, well, okay. Uh, it's uh, at Collins, uh, C-O-L-L-I-N uh, underscore Suter, S-O-U-T-E-R. So at Colin underscore Suter. Or that, you can find me on Facebook or Letterboxd or, yeah. Yeah, Letterboxd is a great site. Uh, I'm sure Rattle and Hum needs more reviews probably on Letterboxd, so go check that out. I think out. I copied and pasted my <laughs> review into Letterboxd just out of boredom because yeah. I wanted to have a review of every U2 movie on Letterboxd, and I just, yeah. <laughs> so the I trials of a, yeah, of a film reviewer. Uh, Matt, how about you? Uh, at Matt McGee is a good place to get me. 
and I'm iChris on Twitter, and uh, we're aiming. I don't, I don't know if I should. I should probably announce it so that we're there's some accountability in in terms of this. But uh, with the podcast, we're aiming to do it again biweekly here, and getting back into the swing of things on a somewhat scheduled routine, as it were, and featuring a variety of folks from the show from the from the show. <laughs> We are kind of a show, but uh, from the uh, YouTube site and uh, your comments and feedback, of course, are always welcome. If you, especially if you use the hashtag ask at you too on Twitter, <laughs> otherwise Matt will just delete it before I even get a chance to see it probably. <laughs> and uh, so you can send in comments. You don't even have to tweet at Matt, but if you want to, you can, but you can use hashtag ask at you too. And that'll get automatically inserted into a thing so we can see it later. And uh, any comments on rattle and hum on past episodes of the podcast, what's coming up with you two, where they are in the tour. If you just saw a show, we'd love to hear from you. And uh, we'll be talking about, yeah, a little bit more about set lists and, and stuff as they lead up to their uh, Dublin shows happening right away. Um, Anything else worth mentioning on the calendar, I guess, for you two right now, other than obviously the tour is continuing on and um, Blue uh, Zuropa CD or uh, CD uh, record was just reissued as well. So I'm sure if you're a, a record fan, you've heard of that and probably already have a copy, but. And yet another Joshua Tree reissue as well. Oh, what was that? With the, with the, with the oh, gold vinyl. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Got to milk that tree for all it's worth. Like yes. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, yes. Is film expensive? No. Just check. Cheapest thing. Cheapest thing. All right. On that note, uh, podcasts are very cheap even cheaper than films. So thank you for listening. Uh, feel free if you, if you're so inclined and you'd like to in your Apple podcast player, leave us a rating or a review that would help the word get out about the show. We just changed our name from the the what did i have before atu2 to at you2 in the apple podcast section and somehow that helped us find a few more listeners so hopefully if you're new here you can you've got an archive of 87 previous episodes to go back and listen to which you can find at goodstuff.fm slash atu2 thanks for listening hope you have a great day bye <laughs>